2021 Vasculitis Guidelines Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and I'm excited to be talking to you today about giant cell arteritis with Dr. Murdig Moss. Uh, in case you're just tuning in, this is a podcast series from the Vasculitis Foundation, where I'll be reviewing the 2020 ACR VF-sponsored Vasculitis Guidelines and discussing the updated recommendations with one of the main authors of each guideline document. We have a fantastic episode today that I'm very excited to share with you. Like I said, uh, we'll be talking about giant cell arteritis, or GCA. There's a large vessel of vasculitis that typically affects patients over the age of 50 and presents with constitutional symptoms, headaches, uh, jaw claudication, and of great concern can present with uh, potentially irreversible vision loss. I'm very happy to have Dr. Maz on today to talk about this topic. He's the director of the Division of Allergy, Clinical Immunology, and Rheumatology at the University of Kansas Medical Center. He is also on the core committee of the ACRVF Vasculitis Treatment Guidelines Group. So he is extraordinarily well qualified to be talking about this uh, topic with us today. So, uh, Dr. Maz, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yes, hi, thanks. Uh, it's really great to be here, and, and I appreciate the opportunity to discuss the guideline uh, for GCA today. No, no, no. Grateful to have you. So uh, I, I, I'm just going to dive right into a hot issue uh, on GCA diagnosis, actually, which is the role of temporal artery ultrasound. Now, I believe there are some practical considerations that led to a conditional recommendation for temporal artery biopsy over ultrasound for diagnosis. Uh, but I, you know, I was just curious to hear if you could share your thought process. Uh, would you say, uh, what would you say to a proponent of ultrasound who would argue that the goal of guidelines is to encourage best practice, perhaps? Um, perhaps encouraging adoption of ultrasound. And uh, why did you guys wind up on this uh, side of that debate? Yes, actually, this is a very good question. But uh, let me start with a short answer, and then we can discuss this a little bit more. The short answer is that this recommendation was not really intended to discourage use of ultrasound in the evaluation of patients with suspected GCA. Also, let me mention that uh, the objective of this guideline was to provide, as you know, evidence-based recommendation and expert uh, guidance for management of GCA in the United States. Um, how we went about this, developing the guideline was really nicely outlined by Dr. Sharon Chong in one of your um, initial podcasts on this series. But the important factor and fact to kind of discuss and outline is that out of the 22 recommendations for GCA, only one of them was uh, a strong recommendation, and the remainder were conditional, including the one where uh, we discussed the temporary biopsy over the use of ultrasound for, of the temporary, of course, for diagnosis of uh, GCA. Um, I think it's also important that we spend a minute to explain what we mean by conditional versus strong recommendation, as it really pertains to a lot of questions you, that you may have about guideline. So as some of you may know, strong recommendations typically supported by really moderate or high quality evidence, such as what you see in randomized control trials. A strong recommendation is one that usually applies to all or almost all patients and conditions, and only a small portion or, of physicians or patients would not want to follow that recommendation. On the other hand, Really, a conditional recommendation is supported by lower quality of evidence. So a conditional recommendation, uh, for instance, would apply to most of the patients. But the important thing is that the alternative uh, kind of therapies or applications are also reasonable consideration. 
So I think as we go through these discussions, let's keep in mind these definitions so uh, we can kind of further clarify this. Now, having said that, I have to say the guideline is intended for what is practical and accessible at the present time in the United States, right? So uh, this was based on available expertise and the use of ultrasound for this purpose. And the comfort level that we have with this use in, uh, in diagnosing GCA in the United States. Uh, as you know, the temporary ultrasound requires a certain degree of skills, expertise, kind of familiarity with this technique, uh, which unlike the European countries currently is not as widespread in the United States. For this reason, we mentioned in the, in the guideline that uh, in centers where uh, appropriate uh, training and expertise exists, uh, temporary ultrasound may be useful and complementary tool to diagnosing the GCA. Now I have to say also that we hope that as this diagnostic modality is used more often and more centers develop skills and expertise in using, interpreting these uh, by radiologists and also rheumatologists alike, uh, we would be able to utilize this non-invasive and less expensive imaging um, kind of study to assist with the diagnosis of patients who have, we have suspicion about GCA. And of course, this all is in the course, uh, the, the right clinical setting. So yeah, it's not precluding the use, but we hope that we go towards that eventually. I think that's a, a great nuanced answer. And I, I think that that's really the perspective everyone should take towards these guidelines, which you know, they're not necessarily requirements. They're sort of guidance to help you in your clinical practice. And you know, I've been trying to do a fast track clinic uh, in my current institution, and it's been a really good learning experience, uh, both for the potential that ultrasound has, and just also for the degree to which I, you know, I think that a lot of training and a lot of experience is required before you can feel comfortable with that. And like you said, just most people in the United States aren't really getting that training yet. So I think it'll be a little ways in the future that maybe we'd be adjusting that. <laughs> Well, we hope that because, as I said, the, this is really not that expensive to do and it, it could be available almost anywhere if you have the expertise. Yeah, I found it very helpful, but I'm doing it very cautiously because I think that, you know, anytime that you're introducing a new modality, you have to be very confident first. I, I, we had a call with Christina Ponte a while ago and she recommended 300 before you could really uh, be comfortable knowing what you're doing. I'm, I'm a ways away. Um, yeah. So... Uh, speaking from practice, though, um, <clears throat> another thing that I saw where the guidelines sort of diverged from what I think I see people doing with imaging is with regard to non-invasive vascular imaging. Uh, there was a conditional recommendation for obtaining non-invasive imaging for large vessel involvement, um, which I don't think most people are doing routinely, at least. Uh, and so I was curious to hear from you. Do you think this should be interpreted as a recommendation for universal screening? And and if so, uh, by what modality would you recommend people do that? Yes, um, I think you're right about the current prevalent practice outside some of the academic centers where uh, the imaging for large vessels is really not routinely considered or done. Um, again, I have to stress that this is a conditional recommendation, right? So uh, the idea was really based on the knowledge that vascular or large vessel involvement in giant cellulitis can be present with or without overt clinical manifestations. So the implications of this, of course, as you know, is very significant, especially in chronic management and monitoring of the disease. 
and it's large vessel complications as well as response to therapy, for instance, in those cases where they have large vessel disease to begin with. So um, on the other hand, uh, you know, our guideline also um, state that um, in patients without large vessel involvement, um, the, uh, on initial screening if it's done, uh, routine and repeated monitoring with vascular imaging may or may not be necessary. Uh, of course, this depends on clinical manifestation and symptoms while um, the patients are follow uh, longitudinal. So as you know, large vessel imaging can also help with diagnosis of GCA in absence of uh, cranial manifestation or in lieu of temporary biopsy or when we're faced with a negative temporary biopsy, but we're still concerned that patients have signs or symptoms of large vessel disease that require further evaluation, management, diagnosis, of course. Now as to what kind of modality to use, um, we think that both MRA and CTA are fairly well available and can be used for this purpose. Um, we're not really recommending conventional catheter-based angiogram as a routine screening imaging, since as you know, it's a more expensive procedure and uh, the MRA and CTA provide the necessary information that you want for this uh, diagnostic reason. Kind of a follow-up on that. What, and this is something I've been struggling with, what, what vascular distributions do, do you aim for? Do you get the branch vessels and the bilateral axilla? Because sometimes I find it's a lot of orders. <laughs> Well, it is actually. If you want to do the whole gamut of things, uh, you end up doing uh, a lot of imaging. Mm -hmm. So some places like ours, we have um, we have developed uh, this protocol. Well, not we haven't developed, but we're kind of monitoring, following the, develop, uh, the developed protocols um, where we work with a radiologist. And for instance, with MRA and CPA, we do protocols of uh, imaging the uh, neck for vertebral carotid arteries. Uh, with MRA, and also imaging the uh, chest to look at the aorta, the subclavian extending to the uh, kind of, uh, proximal brachial axillary. And then following that with the MRA of the abdomen pelvis in one setting, neck is usually separate, but in one setting to look at um, you know, the abdominal aorta and its branches. So it can be a really cumbersome study and prolonged study. And so, in some patients, MRA is suitable. In some patients, CTA may be suitable for them. And so we decide based on uh, the patient, the case, and so Great, yeah. I, I, was, I was curious to see that one. And I think I've been doing more and more over time, but I think this will really kind of change how people view that, which is perhaps a very good thing. Yeah. So uh, my next question for you uh, was about the role of treatment. Uh, the guidelines made a recommendation for tocilizumab upfront as opposed to glucocorticoids alone, which I, I believe that reflects my practice and that of many others. Uh, it does differ, however, from the, the 2018 UR recommendations, which only said tocilizumab in cases of uh, presence or uh, of high risk for glucocorticoid-related adverse events. So what do you think led to the difference between those two areas? I'm always curious when the two bodies diverge. Sure, yes, um, good question again. Um, uh, again, reminding that this is a conditional recommendation, so alternative approaches are still acceptable. But as you know, the tocilizumab is the only FDA-approved therapy for GCA. Interestingly, uh, even glucocorticoids, including prednisone, are not FDA-approved for this indication, although we're quite aware of their efficacy for management of GCA. Um, so 
the use of tocilizumab early on is considered based on the data that came from JACTA, which showed that tocilizumab has a significant steroid spreading effect in GCA. And so it is conditionally recommended to be considered for initial treatment to potentially reduce the uh, side effects of chronic steroid therapy. However, as we mentioned in the guideline, um, methotrexate with prednisone glucocorticoids as well as prednisone alone or glucocorticoids alone uh, can be considered as the initial treatment for the newly diagnosed patients with GCA. And uh, of course, the decision to uh, treat with uh, tocilizumab and steroids, uh, methotrexate and you know, prednisone and prednisone monotherapy as the initial therapy really should be based on um, uh, physician's experience, you know, patient's clinical condition, values, their preferences, of course. Um, and this is something that we kind of repeat through the, not only this, uh, but the other ones, uh, to kind of have a shared decision-making uh, with patients as well. Um, in, in regard to map, the cost may be a limiting factor. Um, and also its use is influenced by other factors, right? So uh, patients who have recurring infections or mm -hmm. history of diverticulitis and risk of perforation, we may not be able to use this. So again, those other uh, options are valid and can be used, but that's how we meant about it. Now, in regard to abatacept uh, with uh, glucocorticoid therapy, that is also another consideration when these other agents, tocilizumab and methotrexate as steroid spain agents, uh, are not effective or not available for the system. You can't uh, just put you on the spot here. If you can't use tocilizumab, are you reaching for methotrexate, uh, abatacept? Are you kind of just trying with steroids alone? What's your general practice. And this isn't necessarily the guidelines, just your own personal approach. Sure. First of all, my experience from where I trained and practice was to treat uh, with uh, monotherapy with, with uh, prednisone. In uh, certain cases, uh, really recalcitrant patients who couldn't really take the prednisone addition of methotrexate, especially uh, on those who had um, extracranial large vessel disease. Um, now, with the, as we went through this guideline and this extensive literature review that the team did, the literature review team, and really went uh, through the data very, very carefully, it kind of becomes clear that it is um, acceptable and reasonable to use methotrexate as a, as a steroid spraying agent in some of these patients, um, more than abatacept, uh, at least in my experience, but doesn't again preclude that. Yeah, I think there's an ongoing trial from the French vasculitis study group, Metogia, that was looking at this question, just methotrexate, I think against tocilizumab. So we'll hopefully have more data on that in the future. I think the prior, prior trials of methotrexate have been uh, encouraging, but certainly not conclusive. So it's, it's, it's an interesting area. Rheumatologists love methotrexate, but it's never really taken off in this disease. Uh, right, so I mean, yeah, but you may you, you may know the data about this, of course, uh, the um, use of methotrexate uh, as a steroid spraying agent, and I know a couple of good clinical trials that were available uh, with different kind of a, um, a study protocol, and then finally the meta-analysis. So some of this data is, uh, com comes from that, of course. But yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I actually, I think I had a podcast on that a while back, but we'll stay away from that. So uh, <laughs> next question that's also kind of idiosyncratic 
you know, I think you mentioned how much uh, people are influenced by where they trained. And I've seen that very much with regard to aspirin and statins in this disease. Uh, you know, these are two areas that, I, uh, you know, that feel reasonable things to do, but are overall, in my opinion, under investigated. The guidelines gave a conditional recommendation against statins and in favor of aspirin for critical or flow limiting cerebral artery lesions. So I was just curious, you know, why not statins and then why aspirin and what, what kind of brought about those uh, two recommendations? The way they were stated, that's a very good question. Really, I have to clarify that this particular recommendation was specifically to answer whether statins, for instance, could be used for the treatment, I have emphasized the treatment of GCA. The guideline recommendations were based on the lack of strong available evidence about statin use providing significant immunosuppressive effect for giant cell arthritis. That's how this came about. Now, uh, the recommendation was not to really address whether statins are useful in managing the patients for the, who have you know, risk factors for cardiovascular events. Yeah, certainly. That's a totally different clinical question mm -hmm. that you answered. Um, but similarly, um, the question about the aspirin, there's really limited evidence regarding the aspirin use. There are some, uh, uh, but uh, we know that the uh, antiplatelet activity of aspirin may be beneficial in preventing ischemic events in patients with vascular narrowing causing decreased cerebral blood flow. But, you know, the efficacy of aspirin to prevent ischemic events in patients without that kind of a vertebral or carotid um, stenosis narrowing really is unclear as of yet uh, as a strong evidence, you know. All right. And, yeah. Uh, to also uh, clarify that um, theoretically, it makes sense to reduce the cardiovascular risk factors for uh, management of some patients using uh, aspirin or statin, which is what we tend to do in clinical practice, right? For those patients who have um, other cardiovascular risk factors. But again, uh, the um, available data through the extensive literature review really didn't point to the specific efficacy of these options in treating the disease and its complications. And once again, this being a conditional recommendation, uh, this doesn't again exclude the use of these therapies um, based on the patient's uh, you know, uh, clinical situation, risk factors, and the treating physician's uh, decision. So that we have to keep in mind in all cases. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, all right, so one more question, and, and this may be a tough one. This is sort of along the lines of something I'd hoped to see, but that hadn't come out. And that's with regard to the duration of glucocorticoids and tocilizumab. There's been quite a lot of interest lately on this in ankyvasculitis and, uh, and lupus and limiting glucocorticoid exposure. And that's certainly a goal in GCA, uh, but there has been very limited data past the JAX trial on how limited that can be. Um, I know a lot of us like guidance in this area though. So. Uh, was there any discussion on including recommendations for the duration of tocilizumab um, or glucocorticoids? And, and, and regardless, what, what do you personally do to approach those questions? Yeah, yeah you brought up an excellent question, um, uh, which of course has a significant practice implication, right? Um, yeah, of course, there was a lot of discussion about this, but we had to look at the data behind uh, uh, answering this the PICA question. And um, um, I'm sure that uh, some of the readers who would read the guideline will have the same questions and want to know uh, how to do, how to go about 
managing patients uh, and how long to treat the patients. That's really important. But again, because of lack of uh, prolonged or long evidence of, on, on how long to treat uh, these patients, the optimal duration was not determined, except that we were able to only state as a position statement, um, not a specific recommendation, that the optimal duration of therapy with glucocorticoids for giant cell iritis is really not well established and should be guided again by patients' values and preferences. So uh, this was discussed, discussed among the patient panel um, who really emphasized minimizing the use of steroids based on their experience, but also they recognized that uh, in some patients, relapses occur, and so we, we need to treat patients longer. And uh, when discussing among the panel, the clinicians also had similar thought process. Now, um, regarding a length therapy with tocilizumab, at the time that we ran this literature review, so you remember this started years ago, I think initially in 2016, when we got together, 2017, when the whole process started. The, the literature review was, uh, when it was done, some of the data was not available and we couldn't really go retrospectively use the data that was available after the fact. But um, because of the lack of long-term follow-up with tocilizumab at the time of this literature review, um, the guideline was kind of developed uh, and was influenced by, by this kind of uh, uh, lack of data. But um, as you know, for instance, in the first part of the JACTA, JACTA study, uh, it was reported that the effect of tocilizumab uh, was kind of reported for 12 months. But the second part that came out afterwards, of course, extended this data for three years, showing some favorable response in patients who, um, large patients actually, large number of patients who were treated with tocilizumab for one year and then stopped. And then they maintained their um, uh, drug-free remission for the following two years. So there's some data now available for that uh, in that regard, if tocilizumab is, of course. In addition, uh, you know, most controlled trials, of course, have not followed patients prospectively for a long period of time, you know, years and years, or specifically kind of designed the studies to rapidly taper the prednisone when comparing it to a steroid sparing agent. So bottom line, we couldn't make a recommendation about a specific length of therapy. However, based on, you know, retrospective data, now this is outside the guideline, we know that the GCA can persist or be smoldering despite appropriate therapy and that the um, active large vessel disease could progress to complications, including aortic dissection, even years after the initial diagnosis. So although we couldn't really outline a length of therapy, we did mention that for patients with GCA who are in apparent clinical remission, we strongly recommended long-term clinical monitoring or no clinical monitoring at all. And this was, uh, I have to remind you, the only strong recommendation in this guideline. Even the minimal risk and potential catastrophic outcomes of patients were not monitored chronically. So by doing so, we were emphasizing the need for chronic monitoring to recognize and detect disease progression that would require you know, more prolonged therapy. Um, in clinical practice, uh, of course, many consider treatment for a couple of years or more, especially with monotherapy with steroids. 
in my own um, you know experience experience and I assume uh, the experience of some others um, in comparison polymodular matica uh, you know uh, which really require a tapering course of prednisone on average for one to two years chancellor RIS would require a longer course of monotherapy and emphasizing the monotherapy with prednisone um, starting at a higher dose of course and then carefully gradually kind of tapering the prednisone within the uh, next two to three years and of course on a lower dose, the longer one is out from their initial diagnosis. I have to say my own clinical experience has also been that some of these patients when treated with monotherapy with prednisone may still need a small dose of prednisone for many years, you know, three to five milligrams, for instance. And so this also brings up the idea of considering adding a steroid spring agent in an attempt to allow for more rapid tapering of the prednisone uh, while reducing the number of relapses that could occur as we manage and follow these patients. Of course, like anything else, you know, more data is needed to provide a conditional or strong recommendation about length of therapy. Uh, we are encouraged that with longer prospective follow-up of patients in uh, controlled trials, as we see now happening more and more, uh, we will have a better understanding and uh, have a better answer to this question, which is important, and, but that will be in the future. Now, I think before I end this, uh, I want to just emphasize that the goal or the vision of ACR um, is that similar to other ACR guidelines, the ACR and Vasculitis Foundation uh, um, management guideline uh, will be updated periodically in the future so that we can have a timely recommendation based on the new data or new therapies. We know that they will become available later. This would, of course, address some of the questions or practice recommendations that are here, but we know that there's uh, still some gap of knowledge and uh, this require more evidence-based data to, uh, for us to help us with more informed decision-making process for management of patients. I think that's a good place to end. I mean, I think that this is a part of an ongoing process. It's not that these are the, the first guidelines and certainly not the last one. So, uh, you know, just be moving forward as always. <laughs> Um, I think that's a good place to conclude. Um, I want you know, it's been great having you on, Dr. Maz. I've, I've learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners have as well. Uh, to our mm-hmm. listeners, be sure to check out the Vasculitis Foundation. You can find them on their website at vasculitisfoundation.org or on Twitter. They're at vasculitisfound. You can find me at EB Room. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. And uh, Dr. Maz, thank you once again for coming on the show. Thank you again. Have a good one. Bye-bye. You as well.